Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. No, 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 don't give the laptop to the monkey. Huma, wake up. The zebra is eating my screensaver. Huma, you're having a bad dream. What? Where am I? Huma, it's me, Anthony. You were having one of your nightmares. None of it was real, baby. You mean Kellyanne Conway is not really a carnivorous animal with giant flesh-tearing jaws? Well, that part is true, but honey, the rest of it was just the stuff of dreams. That was a really horrible dream. You kept getting caught and sending out pictures of your jaws. That was all real, too. I knew it. On another subject, have you been using my laptop? Well, maybe like a couple times. The boss likes some of her emails printed out, and I can't print any from my... Huma, I just can't believe you would borrow my laptop without asking. That's just wrong. Honey, a marriage is built on trust and respect. You're right. I have to do better. Seriously, just ask first, baby. That's all I'm saying. We discussed this in counseling. Anthony, will we ever get our old lives back? I've been thinking about that, doll. I want us to have a fresh start somewhere where nobody knows us. Where where would that be? Maybe Montana. They've got some wide open spaces. We'd change our names. <laughs> That's a great idea. What'll our new names be? I'll probably be Rod Schnitzelboner. I was thinking of Karen Crotch Ferret for you. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something that bothers me about those names. Couldn't they be something more basic like Jeff Wilson and Jane Wilson? Come on, baby. That's going to call attention to our past. How so? You know, Jeff Wilson. I'm Jeff Wilson. What does that make you think of? Volleyballs? You know, Anthony, I don't really think names work the way you think they work, but let's listen to this show. Maybe we'll get some ideas. And now he's pitching all the networks on his new series, James Comey, Real Estate Agent, Colin McEnroe. Although I've sort of rethought that. Actually, actually, what I think I want to pitch the networks on is a series where James Comey is still the FBI director, but Hillary Clinton's the president, and no one will tell him anything. He's just constantly, agents will be coming back saying, yeah, it was this huge Ruby Ridge type shootout. And he'll be going, what, how come no one told me? I, 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 nobody even mentioned to me that this happened. He'll be like this. I'm not sure whether it's a comedy or not. But anyway, James Comey and the poor wieners. There's so much to talk about today. We are very excited about the guests that we have. Uh, Gabriel Sherman is a national affairs editor at New York Magazine, contributor to NBC News, MSNBC, uh, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Loudest Voice in the Room, which used to be Roger Ailes. That was the old days when Roger Ailes had the loudest voice in the room. Uh, but he is absolutely the expert uh, on um, uh, as a journalist, anyway, reporting on Fox News. And his article, Final Days, uh, is on the cover of today's New York magazine. Everybody's been reading it all weekend. If there hadn't been this other thing that happened, it absolutely would have been the most talked about piece of journalism this weekend. Maybe it still is. Also joining us is Sahil Kapoor, uh, a national political reporter for Bloomberg Politics. Uh, we're going to talk about some of these developments, both uh, some of the things that are in uh, Gabriel's story and also some of the 
ways in which the Comey story uh, unfolded. Um, and Sahil, I'm going to begin with you. This The story of James Comey, the FBI director, and these supposedly pertinent uh, emails that were discovered apparently on Thursday, announced on Friday, uh, hadn't actually been read. It's kind of followed a strange arc in, in, in the level of importance attached to it, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it, it kind of seemed on Friday as though cable news just kind of took this to DEFCON 4 or whatever the worst DEFCON is. And then over the weekend, it kind of stayed there, although it kind of seemed to bleed oxygen a little bit. You know, there was a sense that, well, maybe it's like DEFCON 3.5 or maybe it's DEFCON 3 or maybe it's a nothing burger. Maybe there's nothing there. It's kind of like cable news declared this incredible emergency without really knowing whether there was one. Colin, thanks for having me on. I think what what happened there is the way uh, FBI Director James Comey worded the letter, it was vague, you know, it was opaque. It was this, almost a blank canvas where anybody loved Hillary Clinton or hate her could interpret it as they wanted. Um, the Hillary Clinton campaign and her allies interpreted this as uh, they focused on the fact that Comey said there may not be anything significant here. He, he left open that possibility. And, of course, Hillary Clinton's uh, critics saw this as validation of their, you know, of their belief, as many Trump fans do, that she um, is a criminal, that she could potentially be indicted and that the case against her isn't closed. So I think the way the letter came out, the way it was worded, um, left open to a lot of interpretation. And obviously, in the heat of a political campaign, people are going to exploit that to the extent that they can. The actual impact from this, it's not entirely clear because we've only had a weekend of polling, but early signs are that this is accelerating a trend that was already happening before of Republican voters moving in the direction of Trump in the final weeks. But Democrats do not seem phased. A CBS YouGov survey found that only 1% of Hillary Clinton supporters were less likely to vote for her on this, and only 5% of Democratic voters said they were less likely. 13% of Democrats said they were more likely to support her. So the one upside is that this could have a little bit of a jolting impact to her base, lull them out of complacency. But overall, I, it's probably going to work against her because it's, it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's been a bad story for her throughout this entire campaign. Although, Gabriel Sherman, reading your piece, um, you could, one could almost predict what the problem was going to be. There are moments in your piece where uh, Kellyanne Conway, currently the manager of the Trump campaign, um, you know, she's sort of telling Trump, more or less, you don't want to have your amp turned all the way up to 11 all the time, because that means you've got no place to go if you want to turn it up higher. She talks about this in terms of maybe mixing up your tweets a little bit, maybe have some, having some happy tweets instead of all angry tweets. And, and that's a little bit of the Trump problem right now, right? If you've already been getting your supporters to chant, lock her up since the convention in Cleveland, you don't necessarily have anything new to say when something like this happens. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me. And, you know, I think one of the most uh, striking revelations of, of my story, and I think it's relevant to this week, is uh, since Trump locked up the nomination, his uh, revolving cast of advisors, starting with Paul Manafort and continuing with Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon, have been telling Trump that if, if he sticks to the issues, doesn't make news, and makes Hillary Clinton the focus, he's likely to win because of her record high unfavorable numbers. Um, and with this Comey story, I mean, he's been handed um, a unbelievable gift eight days before the election. And if he can somehow stay on message uh, and force the attention to be on the Clinton campaign, I think, you know, we could see some movement in, in these uh, swing state numbers where he's trying to be competitive um, in Michigan, uh, Florida, 
uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, but again, knowing Trump, you know, his advisors have, have failed uh, to, to get him to stay focused. So I think it's, you know, a, definitely a big question mark if he has the discipline to, to do that for the next week. This Your story is a kind of fascinating depiction of things that maybe we kind of suspected or, or thought we knew about what was going on inside the campaign and maybe even things that we couldn't have imagined. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The way that I interpreted one of the things that you said in the story was that Kellyanne Conway has figured out that if she wants to influence her candidate, if she wants to be listened to, she's sort of better off going on Meet the Press or some cable news show and saying it while he's watching TV than actually just saying it to him when she's sitting in the room with him? Um, that's, that's part of it. It's a little more nuanced. Um, you know, she said that obviously she has direct access to the candidate and she does give him direct advice. Um, but she mentioned that, yes, uh, at other times, uh, speaking to him through cable television, because he's an avid TV watcher, is another way to communicate with him. Uh, and she mentioned that Newt Gingrich is another example of a Trump advisor and a surrogate who oftentimes will try to get messages uh, to the candidate by just speaking them uh, publicly on TV, which I thought was fascinating. Um, Sahil, um, one of the things that the Clinton campaign was worried about a while ago was complacency. Before the race t- tightened, uh, they were worried that everybody would think that this was such a layup that they didn't have to show up. And she's really addressed that a lot in her uh, in her campaigning. I assume this is kind of a strange and unwelcome gift in that way, right? I mean, you you now don't even have to make a case about complacency. You've got a really tough problem on your hand. This is true. And if there's one upside that that does come out of this for them, I think overall, it's, I, I agree with Gabe here, it's bad for them. But if there's one upside that comes out of this, it is um, the, the jolt to the base. Now, the Clinton campaign has had a, you know, a long paranoia about complacency, a well-founded and kind of a healthy paranoia about um, complacency that dates back all the way to the primary. And they've had this in the general election as well. I mean, people are not quite as, you know, visibly, um, at least on the surface, excited about her candidacy as they were about President Obama's. But mainly it's that her coalition is made up of low propensity voters, minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, unmarried women, millennials. These are not easy people to turn out to the polls, and they tend only to really turn out in presidential election years with a lot of effort as President Obama made in 2008 and 2012. So, yes, they've been worried about this from the start. Um, they, they do believe, the sense I've gotten from people close to the campaign, is they do believe this helps their case. The campaign chairman, John Podesta, wrote to supporters that it's all on the line. You cannot take anything for granted. This kind of adds, you know, this gives them a little bit more oxygen to make that argument. But, you know, again, it, overall, this is bad for her because the email issue has led to not only declining favorable numbers for her, but it's led to sky-high um, perceptions of being, of her being dishonest and untrustworthy. That's something she's constantly had to battle. There's some polls for long stretches of time that have found her even more dishonest and untru- perceived as more dishonest and untrustworthy than Donald Trump. That certainly drives her campaign nuts when they see that. Um, and this is not going to help that. Um, you know, Gabe uh, Sahil just used the word effort. And, and effort is something that comes up in your story. Um, just how much effort is anybody willing to make? And when you have these constant changes of leadership, uh, going from Manafort to Conway and Bannon and stuff like that, how well can you keep anything organized? And so I think we do know that the Clinton team has this huge data analytics uh, effort going and you know chasing absentee ballots and, and, and working on early voting and stuff like that. 
And and contra, I don't know how granular you able you were able to get, but you know, high up in your stories, there's this moment where Trump says to Kellyanne Conway, "Well, you know, if we win, it'll be okay, it'll be great, and if we lose, it'll be okay too." You know, and she says, "No, it won't. I mean, there are all these people, these people who've pinned their hopes to you, and you know, your dry cleaning bill is is like their uh, your salary for them. It's going to be okay." But there's a way in which that that effort and that desperation has never been there. Yeah, you know, I think that's both, uh, it works for Trump and it works against him. Um, you know, I've covered his campaign beginning since the primary. And, you know, as his advisors will tell you, when he jumped into the race, he never thought he would be here. I mean, he always expected to drop out during the primaries and go back to hosting The Apprentice. And I think he shocked and surprised himself by doing so well. Um, so throughout this entire campaign, there has been a feeling of, well, you know, I've I never thought I would be here, so I've done better than I ever expected. And I actually think his supporters, there's a part of them that likes that, you know, his his sense of he doesn't live for politics. He always presents himself as not a politician. And so the fact that he doesn't, you know, live and breathe this stuff, I think, is refreshing to the people that are drawn to his candidacy. Now, the downside of that is, as you mentioned, you know, he's not necessarily, you know, hungry. And when things don't go his way, he kind of just rolls up his sleeves and say, well, you know, I didn't, really didn't want it anyways. So I think you see that that tension um, that is played out. And I think part of the other one of the other themes I just want to touch on is I don't think Trump has fully processed the the, the sort of depth um, and the intensity of this movement and that this is not just a reality show. And this is actually, you know, people really care passionately about trying to uh, to change uh, the country, especially, you know, Trump's downtrodden supporters. And so I think what Kellyanne Conway was trying to communicate in that exchange was this isn't just about you. This is about a movement. And you really have to think about the people that are turning out to support you and you have to sacrifice for them. Yeah, I want to come back to that, Gabe, because it's one of the really interesting things in your article is the way in which various people who are uh, high ranking uh, officers in the campaign, I think, have different understandings or definitions about what's going on or what the likely end game might be. But before we get to that, um, Sahil, Sahil you, you've already kind of alluded to this, but maybe we should say it directly. Um, you know, the polling's tightening. Maybe this is kind of feeling a little bit more like a three point race. But when you look at the electoral map, it still does look as though Trump would have to do some amazing things, right? I mean, he would have to win some places that uh, he's going to struggle to win, and probably then win one more very blue state in order to pull off the electoral vote total. It's a real it's a real lift for him. You're absolutely right. And I think just think, think of it this way. If um, Trump were to win every state that Romney won in 2012, Mitt Romney won in 2012, including North Carolina, by the way, where he's behind, he could win Florida, Ohio, Iowa and Nevada and still lose the, elect, the election to Hillary Clinton. That would get him to 265 electoral votes. What he needs to do is win another big state, uh, at least you know medium-sized state, where he's been behind the entire cycle. Hillary Clinton's greatest um, asset right now is a firewall she's had in Colorado, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, states that have either been uh, trending red or you know, or, or been very close up until this election. And she's doing very well there, primarily because these states have a higher percentage of college-educated voters and college-educated white voters whom Trump is losing. But could probably be the first, uh, would probably be the first can- a Republican since World War II to lose this, uh, you know, to lose this constituency. So, yes, Trump has a very, very, you know, big uphill climb in the polls. And even if we're looking at national polls that show a one point, two point, three point race, it doesn't change these swing state numbers. 
Um, you know, Gabe, one question that I had reading your article, the article is just terrific. It's it's fascinating, and it really is, even for those of us who've been paying a lot of attention to this, uh, it kind of breaks some new ground. Did you did you get a sense of what all these people, and by all these people I mean Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and, and Kellyanne Conway and Jared Kushner, and uh, what they really think of, uh, about Hillary Clinton? I You know, there was that odd moment where, uh, in, in one of the debates where Trump was asked, you know, what, what each candidate was asked what they liked about the other candidate or admired, you know, and he said this whole that whole thing about how she's a fighter uh, and she doesn't give up and all this kind of stuff. And it almost seemed like he might mean it. And I was sort of wondering, I mean, obviously, a lot of the people who are supporting Trump have this fervid, uh, you know, antipathy towards the Clintons, real animosity, real distrust. Is that the attitude inside the campaign? Yeah, you know, I don't I wouldn't presume to be in any one of their heads. I mean, that's the terrain of a novelist, but I feel, you know, based on my conversations with with all uh people around the campaign, you know, Kellyanne Conway is a committed conservative. Um she has been a Republican pollster going back years in the 90s. She was uh active in Republican politics and in working against Bill Clinton's administration. So, of course, yes, this is a this is uh, very much, you know, in, in keeping with her career. The same with Steve Bannon. You know, Breitbart has been the loudest um, uh, sort of media voice on the far right to, to speak to this conspiratorial uh, backlash to Hillary Clinton's um, candidacy. And then, you know, with Trump, I think it's really impossible to divine what he actually thinks. You know, he famously went to the Clinton's, uh, he invited the Clintons to um, to his wedding, and he's donated money to them. But, you know, I think this campaign has battle-hardened him, and I think he does feel in a lot of ways that the media is in in her corner and is, you know, allegations that the entire system is rigged is, you know, maybe thin as the evidence might be for that. I think he truly sort of feels that it's him versus the world, um, and that is that I think is fueling um, – uh, a lot of the energy inside the campaign is the sense that the Clinton machine needs to be stopped. You know, Sahil, I know that you uh, read uh, Gabe's article with great interest. Uh, and one of the uh, moments that you flagged, and this gets back to this whole question of effort, too. One of the moments that you flagged in Gabe's article was this moment where after his attack on the cons, um, one of his advisors, uh, one of Trump's advisors says, you know, you just attacked a gold star family. And Trump says, what's that? And Sahil, I assume that you, you you read that kind of the way that I read it, which is, once again, people in this campaign are occupying different realities. And usually in a campaign, you try to know as much as you possibly can. You try to nail down anything that's flapping loose and not working. You know, it's all about detail. It's all about mastery. And, and Trump seems to just occupy this different universe. He just didn't even know what a gold star family was it, it, it was a great piece and and uh major props to, to gabe for it i enjoyed reading it and i learned a lot from it um that was one of the moments that that was one of the moments that stuck out to me because it reveals the extent to which trump is not a person who bothers about details right this is not knowing knowing what a gold star family is is one of the first things you would learn when you at, at the very least once you take any interest in in military policy once you take any interest in veteran uh you know veterans groups and veterans policy and that's something that trump has talked about a lot but yes i think what it reveals is that trump is not um he's also not particularly attuned to the details of public policy right um, more so than more so than previous candidates i mean uh, people said george w bush and ronald reagan too were not exactly policy wonks and and didn't 
really care so much for the details as much as they cared for the broad strokes. But Trump is unique in that he will, his positions will switch very frequently and pretty rapidly and sharply, you know, in the span of a few days, sometimes even the span of one interview, he'll contradict himself on a policy, this, you know, of a particular thing. And I think the way he views it is less from a standard political perspective and more as a businessman. Everything is negotiable. There are few things that he has, that he has emphasized. There are a few things that he has emphasized as a centerpiece of his um, campaign. I think uh, re- immigration restrictionism is one of them. Uh, trade protectionism is another one of them. Apart from that, most of most of the rest of it is negotiable. He talks about broad strokes, and then he says, and and he seems to um, he seems to believe that you know he he'd be willing to be flexible on it, and his supporters are fine with it as long as he's offering this this core, you know, answer to their grievances that these are the people who are keeping you down. It's immigrants, it's trade policies, it's globalists, it's elitists, the media. Um, but it also reveals the extent to which voters aren't pouring over the details of public policy either. The fact that he's that he's been so successful in the primary and you know is is uh, within striking distance, at least in some some national polls, uh, to the popular vote in the general election. So, Gabe, one of the things that you explore in this uh, piece is uh, not only the home stretch but the post game. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about so-called Trump TV, something which doesn't exist. Uh, the possibility that Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, somehow wants to monetize this 14 million dollar data 14 million voter database that he's got and maybe Steve Bannon wants to uh, really take the idea of developing a much harder alt-right medium more seriously Uh, Trump TV that concept seems like a really big lift that would take a lot of work and a lot of money but before we even got to get to that Gabe I mean it seems to me the first thing you have to look at it is Fox News right how's Fox News doing and it seems like Fox News is doing better than ever in this cycle I think their third quarter May, may have been their best rating cycle ever. And in a way, it seems that post-Ales, uh, you know, in the Megyn Kelly era, Fox News might even be in a position to, to center itself a little bit, move a little bit towards at least the perceived center and attract a different kind of viewer. Do you think, as somebody who's really studied Fox News, that this cycle is going to do that for them, or are they going to just go back to being what they always were? Well, I think it's a big question mark. It's I think you know while this election cycle has been great for cable news, uh, I think Fox News, among the three networks, faces uh, the most uncertainty with the leadership change. You know, uh, all of their major um, marquee primetime talent, uh, Megyn Kelly, Sean Hannity, uh, and Bill O'Reilly, have um, you know staked out uh, sort of competing views about this election. Megyn Kelly has been caught in the middle being, you know, the most sort of down centrist when it comes to Trump, Hannity the most so, and then O'Reilly less so being uh, in the in the pro-Trump camp. And now that Ailes is out of the picture, the network doesn't have sort of a, a, a firm hand on the tiller to stake out what its editorial philosophy will be. Um, so going forward, I think there's a lot of debate. A lot of it will center on does Megyn Kelly re-sign her contract, which is currently in negotiation, and furthermore, what do Rupert Murdoch's two sons, James and Lachlan Murdoch, decide to do with Fox News and reposition it either as a more sort of center-right news network or continue with its hard-edged uh, right-wing uh, opinion? You know, Sahil, it seems like one of the things that's happened here anyway is the suspension of ordinary political alliances, the suspension of 
predictable media coloration. I know you flagged a, a tweet by um, uh, the conservative talk show host and a former congressman, Joe Walsh, not the guy from the Eagles, uh, basically saying that he thought that Comey got it wrong when he went too soft on Clinton in July. But he's getting it wrong now, too. And, and that it's, he said, unfair to Hillary for Comey to be bringing this up. I guess Karl Rove has said pretty much the same thing uh, sometime in the last 24 hours. I mean, one's ability to know what a conservative talk show host or conservative political operative is going to say at any given moment is deteriorated and become a lot less predictable. Yeah, the extraordinary thing is that same congressman you just referred to uh, tweeted a few days ago that he's voting for Trump and uh, the day after the election, if he loses, he's going to bring out his musket. And he just kind of left that hanging there. And this is the same congressman who now says that Comey went too far um, in his move with the letter against Hillary Clinton. So, yes, it is bizarre in that sense. Just this morning, I noticed that um, there was uh, there was a, a piece in the New Republic criticizing Harry Reid um, for the way he for the way he went, went after Comey over this yesterday, um, accusing him of breaking the law. And at the same time, as you just mentioned, Karl Rove is kind of defending Hillary Clinton and aligning on you know her page that Comey went too far. It's just bizarre in all kinds of ways. But I think the more salient point, if you try to cut through, um, you know the the day-to-day oddities of this is that we're now seeing the, you know, the split, the fissure within the Republican Party in a way that we haven't seen before. This, the, what we know, what we now know as Trumpism didn't begin with Trump and it won't end with him. There has been a powerful force within the party, a nativist, nationalist, populist wing that hasn't quite made it to the highest levels, mostly because you need a lot of money to get there. And Trump was the one person who could crack the code and do it without it. Um, I guess at least do it with his own money rather than appeal to donors who are more on the business limited government uh, side of the party. So now, you know, we'll see after this election whether those alliances stay. We'll see whether the Republicans will return to being at least predominantly a uh, business minded limited government party or whether they'll move in a more nativist, anti immigration, uh, populist direction. I think that, that, is, is a huge question that hangs over the party after this. And, and yes, to your point about alliances, we've seen a lot of people, and including a, a, most of the people who ran Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012, just fervently, intensely opposed to Trump. And, uh, you know, so I, I, think, I think that's remarkable. I think we'll see, I think where they go next will answer a lot of questions. Do they become Democrats? Do they find a way to stick with the Republican Party? And how does that, how does that lead to a realignment of um, the electorate? Yeah, they're not going to become Democrats. This has been a great conversation, uh, and everybody should read uh, Gabe's uh, story, Gabriel Sherman's story in New York Magazine. It's the cover story in the physical uh, issue, Final Days uh, of the Trump Campaign, and everybody should be reading the journalism of Sahil Kapoor, uh, Sahil Kapoor and, and definitely follow uh, Sahil on Twitter. There's great, you have great stuff on your Twitter feed. I love, by the way— we don't have time to talk about this, but I love the breakup letter that Harry Reid wrote to James Comey because it, it, it kind of like ends, you know, I was the one who stood up for you when other people were criticizing you in your confirmation hearings. I guess I was wrong. That, uh, that letter was extraordinary in so many ways, but that was one of them. It was so tear-stained. All right. We have to take a break. Uh, thanks very much to Sahil and to Gabriel Sherman. We'll be back. We're going to talk about how people's psychologies and personalities affect the kind of political choices they make, especially in such a complicated race. America will die after this election without a man for her protection. Okay, before I bring our guests on board here, I got to uh, tell you about two things, or I'll get in a lot of trouble. One of them is that on 
Thursday at 3 p.m., uh, Richard Dreyfus and I are going to take the stage at Theater Works. Uh, he's there playing Einstein right now. We're going to have a conversation on stage, which you are invited to come to. Uh, we've got some tickets left. There are seats left here, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We'll be um, taping it. You'll do a shorter version of it. will turn into our show. But if you want to hear the full conversation, and he's like a very civics and politics-oriented kind of guy, it turns out. Um, so if you want to hear that full conversation, uh, you got to get tickets. you got to call the Theater Works box office. Theater Works in Hartford, and then come on down to Pearl Street uh, on Thursday and join us. That's number one. Number two is uh, another onstage thing. This has just been announced, but on November 30th, as part of the Chatfield Lecture Series, uh, which is connected to Watkinson School, uh, I will be uh, on stage at Infinity Hall uh, interviewing the acclaimed biographer and journalist John Meacham, uh, most recently a massive biography of George H.W. Bush, but also biographies of people like Andrew Jackson in the past, former editor of Newsweek. Uh, This is November 30th at Infinity Hall, and it's free. It's absolutely free. You do have to reserve a spot. You have to call, I think you have to call Watkinson School and observe, uh, try that anyway, and reserve a spot. I'll be getting you more details about this. It just, just, just got announced, but it's very exciting. Uh, John Meacham is a very big deal, and this is something that in honor of Jack Chatfield, a former teacher at Watkinson and professor at Trinity, uh, in honor of Jack Chatfield, is free, open to the public. You just call and make sure you get a seat, and you get to do this. Okay, so those are my things. Uh, now it's time to talk to our guest. We have new guests here in studio. Carolyn Lin is here in studio, professor of communication at UConn. Paul Teeger, founder and CEO of Speed Reading People and the co-author with Barbara Baron Teeger of the best-selling book, Do What You Are, uh, and many other books also about personality types. So we're going to explore the question, um, a bunch of questions here connected to how people make political choices. Uh, And so, Carolyn, I'm going to begin with you. I mean, I think one of the things that that people struggle with in this election series is how come that nice person down the hall in my apartment building or down the hall where I work, somebody that I enjoy having coffee with or meeting at the garbage cans or whatever, and we've always had a very pleasant and cordial relationship, and that person always seemed very nice. How come that person is making such a terrible political choice? Not only not just a terrible political choice, but an unthinkable political choice. I mean, each side looks at the other's choice and says, I don't understand. You don't have horns. You don't have sharp teeth. You don't have a tail with a point on it, but you're voting for Trump or you're voting for Clinton, depending on which side you're starting on. And this, there's almost a cognitive dissonance here, right? Like, how how do I reconcile the idea that you're one of my fellow human beings, and I used to think of you as a nice person, but you're doing this awful thing. So w- what kinds of helpful, helpful things can we say to people in that situation? Well, I struggle with this question myself, but if you look at it from a social scientific perspective, it seems to me that there's several major factors involved here. Um, a lot of times at work, we don't or our neighbor or our friends. We don't always talk politics in the sharpest terms. We tend to be a little bit polite toward each other. But when it comes to making a decision and you found out what the decisions are for different people, you are amazed. But if you look at the media landscape, we are living in a really fragmented media market. And this fragmentation has really caused a lot of how do I say this, opinion fragmentation as well. And due to our own internal selectivity mechanism, we tend to select the channels, media channels that seem to speak our language. So in many ways, this media diversity has, has actually enhanced knowledge gap, let alone information gap. So you and I, 
maybe good friends, but we probably had different political ideology, but that are not really sharply contrast until something like the presidential election happens. And then we tend to only expose ourselves to information that we seem to agree with. And over time, that really helps sharpen our each of our own position on these issues. But personality type and information processing uh, style also come into play. And I think it's important to emphasize, too, that what's happening is almost as though you and your neighbor have canvases that you're painting in details on. And and because of the media sources that you're drawing on, I'm painting in blue and my neighbor's painting in red. So every time we paint the canvas a little bit more, we paint it more that color. And and I, I notice this. I'm, I'm struggling with the same thing. But like you, I teach uh, and so I've been making an attempt to read conservative media, which is different from what I think. And if you read conservative media, you're going to paint your canvas in with different details. You're going to, for example, look at the latest furor about Hillary Clinton's emails, and you're going to know that several people connected with this investigation who were associated with Clinton took the fifth. They had to take the fifth uh, rather than testify about what they did. That's not something that I would be confronted with a lot, reading maybe a little bit more mainstream, tracking left media. media. And I could give five more examples of that, right? So you keep daubing more paint onto the canvas of what you're seeing, and it's always the same color. Yes, and unfortunately, that's especially prominent in this year's election because you have Donald Trump, who's a very provocative candidate, and you have Clinton, who has been in the public eye for a very long time, and people have very strong opinion about who she really is. And this canvas just gets darker and darker and darker as we speak. So, uh, Paul, you've been looking at, you've studied, what, 2,800 people? You've interviewed 2,800 people. Uh, I did a survey online with 2,700 people Yeah, and looked at their personality types and their <clears throat> predispositions politically, conservative, liberal, Trump, uh, Hillary. Uh, found out some really interesting stuff. Like, what did you find out? Well, first of all, let me let me back up a little bit. I think that this is not sort of a random explanation. I think it's there's some science to this, um, and that is that um, there are a lot more people like Trump than there are people like Hillary mm-hmm. in terms of wiring, hard wiring. You know, I don't get too in the weeds here, but people tend to look at the world in one of two big ways. One is what we call sensing types, which are very concrete, realistic, down to earth, and see what's in front of them. Other people, about twenty, only about 25%, look at the world using their sixth sense, kind of read between the lines, the big picture. And it's 75-25, and so there are a lot more people who are, by nature, ones who do not. You know, here's the thing you hear about Trump more than anything else from anybody. I like what he, that he says what's on his mind, mm. right? But sensing types, especially low, infor- low education sensing types, stop there. Right. It's the intuitives go, yeah, but what's on his mind? How is the fact that he bans a billion people going to affect our war on terrorism? How is it going to affect democracy? How is it going to affect blah, blah, blah? And so the, the deck is really stacked. I don't want to get into that metaphor, but the deck is really stacked against the more liberal folks because uh, there are a lot more people who, by their nature, are conservative. That's what I found. Yeah, or at least, yeah, in terms of how they perceive the world. So I'll give an example of this. It's not from the campaign. It's from Trump's distant past. So uh, during the 90s, I think I have that right, uh, this just came up in the current again this weekend. They were talking about Trump's Connecticut years. And at one point, there was uh, a hearing about who was going to get a casino license. And he was looking, talking about the Mashantucket Pequots. And he said famously or infamously, he said, they don't look like Indians to me. And and people knew what he meant, which is that they look probably more like what his idea of African-American people is. They don't sure. look so much like Indians. So um, to an intuitive person, which you say is right. in the minority, 
you know, an intuitive person would look at that and say, well, they don't look like Indians because, first of all, your idea of Indians <laughs> is probably conditioned from watching exactly. you know, Westerns and stuff like that. And you haven't factored, factored in that they have intermarried. They've lived here in the United States. They've intermarried. They've, inter- they've married some black people. There's all kinds of reasons why maybe they look more African-American than they look Indian. But, you know, maybe but that other huge bulk of censors would, would hear that statement and go, yeah. They don't look like Indians. They don't look like any Indian I ever saw, you know. And so what should get him in trouble, I say should in quotes, like we think that should get him in trouble, probably resounds pretty well with a certain percentage of the public. I, I think it does. And the reality is that, you know, people people want everybody else to be like them. We relate best to people like ourselves. And Trump is a sensing type, in my judgment. And there are a lot more of them than there are Hillary. Hillary is a very esoteric kind of intellectual type of person. And, and her whole type, not just the sensing or intuition part has, you know, she has a whole history of people like John Kerry, like uh, Al Gore, like Bill Bradley, like Mike Dukakis, uh, people that were similar to her, similarly hardwired, that never were able to connect because that's not how they do it. So, Carolyn, one of the things that happens is we know, uh, we've done shows about this, people make uh, decisions about political candidacies, sometimes in the first three or four seconds of seeing a picture of the person. There's an imprinting. We're like baby ducks. You know, you imprint on somebody, and then it's very hard to change that, that impression. And people may also imprint in the sense of just reading the person a certain way. Maybe the Clintons strike you as these fundamentally late 60s, early 70s, hippie, draft-dodging, pot-smoking punks who grew up just to be the people that they are today. And you can't shake that. And nothing that you say, the notion that you could add a bunch of other logs to a different fire and get people to cluster around that fire, it, it's a hopeless case, right? The, the deed already got done way, way, way back at the beginning of the relationship. I have to agree, but I think one of the issues with the Clinton campaign is they have a sense of inevit- inevitability. They mm-hmm. think that this is their year, they will get this done, and they did not take Trump very seriously. But the other thing is that Hillary is a policy person, not really exactly someone who could communicate in public Mm -hmm. very well in the sense that is, yes, that's someone that I could talk with, I could actually connect with, and we already know this. But more importantly, if I want to talk about the more serious level in terms of comparing these two candidates, and that is voters want to feel that their voices are heard. Mm -hmm. So when Hillary Clinton's campaign first came out, they didn't even have a slogan, if mm. you think about it. Later on, they have Stronger Together. Mm. And Stronger Together, compared to Make America Great Again, exactly. you know, you could grade these two slogans. <laughs> so if you think about which one will connect with people more, and I think one of the things that Clinton campaign sh- should have and probably could have done is really listen to the voters and speak their language, which is not that difficult to do. And that's what Obama's campaign was able to do, change we could believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, who could argue with that? So I think they they have this sense of destiny, and they didn't think about there are people who are not happy. There are people who have problems. But their justification would be, we have all these policy statements and on our website. And they will always say, go to our website, rather than this is what... This is what I understand about what your grievances are, and these are the things we could do and talk in a way to people at their level. 
Can rather than yes. yeah, can I just add something? I, I, I agree with everything that Carolyn's saying. I want to bring it back to the voters though, because this is really not about Trump. It's not about Hillary. They make they have a big impact the way they communicate, the way they're wired, who they appeal to, who they don't appeal to. But you know, if Trump gets forty percent of the vote, which would be a washout of all almost of all times, right? That's fifty five, sixty million people that are voting for him, or fifty fifty million people that mm. would vote for him. So you know, if there was no, if these people were not like Trump, the reason why there are so many people who like Trump is because there are so many people who are like Trump. I like Trump. I know that a lot of people don't want to think about that, and they don't want to identify with Trump. But if you're willing to suspend what other people might call a reasonable judgment about who's more qualified, and in my survey, I looked at people and asked very conservative and very liberal who's more qualified, and they all said that Hillary's more qualified by mm. by a large margin. So if you're willing to suspend that part of it and focus on uh, something else that clearly is not as as important or or more damaging, then that says something about us as a people more than it does about the candidates. Okay, yeah, one more thought, Carolyn. Then I got to take a break, and then we'll okay. come back. But yeah, finish well, up this segment. Typically, qualifications don't get someone elected, unfortunately. Right. So one of my good colleagues mentioned how Trump now has made political incorrectness exactly. something that's open and accessible. And that means people are honest about their opinions. But we also should look at Trump's voters in three different groups. One group is probably just like you said, who are like Trump. The other group is where Republicans were never going to vote for Clinton. We're never going to vote for Democrats. The other group would be we used to vote for the Democrats and look at what's gotten us. Mm -hmm. So they're voting for Trump for change. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of our two guests after this. Very, 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 very special thanks to Greg Hill for his performance on the intro to today's show and for his hilarious voice acting on many hundreds of other Colin McEnroe show intros. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Grumpy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry will not be cast today. On tomorrow's show, some North Korea stories you haven't heard. Now, back to Colin. Yeah, we have a pretty amazing show tomorrow uh, that Josh Nalea conceived uh, that will include what happened when a comedy writer for The Simpsons took his vacation in North Korea, but also this uh, fearless uh, Korean-American journalist who went undercover in a North Korean school and taught there. Uh, and and while she was teaching there, was actually uh, kind of compiling a book, uh, and she was just terrified for the entire six months. Anyway, both of them are on the show tomorrow, very different views of North Korea. All right, so right now we're talking about uh, how people uh, evaluate political choices with Carolyn Lin, professor of communication at UConn, and Paul Teeger, a, a founder and CEO of Speed Reading People. Paul recently did a survey of 2,700 uh, voters uh, pairing up their personality types with uh, their voting choices. Um, I've got a couple things I want to get into with both of you, uh, both of you, but so, Caroline, I'm going to start with you. Um, Gil Troy uh, in Time magazine uh, today or yesterday published a piece called, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce the word. It's a, it's a portmanteau of Clinton and antipathy. So it's clintipathy, clintipathy. <laughs> and it's sort of why people don't like the Clintons. And he concludes, if politicians could undergo soul scans, the evidence would probably show that Bill Clinton and Donald Trump lie more frequently and convincingly than Hillary Clinton both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. As a Methodist good girl who is neither a natural politician nor a bluffing businessman, she 
doesn't lie well, despite Trump's calling her the most corrupt candidate ever. Her transgressions don't rank with the bribery and sweetheart deal making that was common in the 19th century political parties or on New York construction sites in the 70s and 80s. Democrats who deem her blameless and Republicans who brand her a master criminal both exaggerate. Such absolutes confuse voters who must judge her lapses in context proportionally, deciding how relevant such past behaviors are in determining what kind of president she or her opponent will be. So he's describing a kind of discernment that, in fact, we're not very good at. Right. What what voters tend to do, what people tend to do is kind of double and triple down on their uh, initial impression as opposed to saying, well, you know, that was kind of bad, but it wasn't as bad as this other thing. You know, if I put this into some kind of continuum, maybe I can sort of see, you know, where Hillary Clinton ranks in terms of honesty and dishonesty. That's not really, for the most part, how people think about these things. Well, unfortunately, initial impression about a politician such as Hillary Clinton has been going on for so long and it's become very deep-rooted belief of in a lot of people's minds. And I think one of the issues that Hillary has always had trouble dealing with in that is the difference between appearance and reality. Mm-hmm. And what happened with most voters and most media audiences is we tend to grab we tend to gravitate towards the headlines mm-hmm. especially in today's media environment you had 24 hour media cycle the media recycle the news over and over and over again and what a lot of times the media people mm-hmm. don't think about is the burnout factor mm-hmm. so whatever that people heard the first time they tend to just take that and run with it and a lot of times i have to say especially for cable media they tend to use more sensational headlines. And if you look at the headline, sometimes you, you, you read the news. The headline says something, and you actually read the story. The story is not exactly what the headline says. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, headlines were stuck in the mind. So, Paul, uh, I haven't looked lately, but within a week or so, there were three times as many undecided voters in, in this cycle as there were Romney versus Clinton four years ago. So what did you learn about people who are undecided? What kind of personalities do well, they have? The way, the way I asked the question was, how likely are you to change your mind? Mm-hmm. And this survey started about two months ago and ended uh, a couple weeks ago. So this is before Friday's revelation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's important to note. So what was interesting is the most conservative types, about 10% said they were very likely to change their mind compared to only 2% of the most liberal kinds. Hmm. So that, would, that boded well for me <laughs> and, my, and my ilk. Um, the, the other thing was I also asked those same folks, did you vote in the last election, the last presidential election? And 22% of the most conservative types did not vote in the last election compared to only 11% of the liberals who did, most liberal types who did vote. So I think that bodes, it sort of bodes well, I think, for, for people like me. However, I, I have to worry that if you haven't, and I, I've also, you know, seen stats that said 15, 20% haven't made up their mind yet. I think that if you haven't made up your mind yet, you're more in the Trump camp. And the reason why is because there's been a lot of opportunity to contrast these two. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be my, my, uh, my assessment. I wonder if, if you would agree with that or not, Carolyn. Um, I'm not so sure because... What happened is that this particular event that happened on Friday, the FBI investigation, now it's going to be a real investigation, might just jolt the liberal base a little bit more strongly. And that could help mobilize some people who are, might have feel a little bit lukewarm about Hillary, and they had always voted Democrats to come out. It's possible. Well, the one thing I learned as a jury consultant is we all see what we want to see. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'd like to see that that also. <laughs> in in general, what I would just say from having reported a lot of campaigns and studied a lot of campaigns is Democrats, uh, Democratic operations, and this is especially true this time around compared to the Trump operations, they have a lot of practice and expertise at turning out unlikely voters. Um, they make their living off of unlikely voters because there are a lot of people in sort of disenfranchised or marginalized parts of society who, if they did vote, would vote for Democrats. So Democrats have been very gotten very good at pulling those votes, for example, in, in minority uh, areas and stuff like that, saying, no, no, you really have to vote. It does matter, that kind of stuff. Republicans tend to be a little less good at that. Their base turns out pretty reliably anyway. So, you know, if there is this, the, the thing that you saw, which is a bigger group of people who hadn't voted in the last election who are effectively conservatives, it may be tougher. I mean, even in a typical year, it would be harder for the Republicans to reach them because uh, they're not as good at it. But, you know, with Trump having very little of a turnout operation or data sure. analytics or anything like that, it's it probably works the other way. I can only hope. Yeah. So uh, I want to thank both of you for doing this. And uh, this is, I mean, we're still as agnostic, uh, I guess, as we ever were. I mean, just did did you wind up able to, I mean, did your 2,700 people like vote one way or another? Did you, do you have like vote totals? What did you, what did you come up with? <laughs> well, more people in this group were for, for Hillary. But the, the important thing in my research was the certain types were very, very strongly for Trump and certain other types were very, very strongly for Hillary. So I, you know, my, my interest is in how different people based on their wiring are more likely to go one way or the other. And that was very confirming in the research. All right. So uh, more to come in terms of our coverage, uh, although tomorrow we're going off to North Korea for a while. Uh, thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan for getting the show together, to Gabriel Sherman from New York Magazine and Sahil Kapoor from Bloomberg Politics. Thanks also to Carolyn Lynn from Yukon, who's in here right now. She's a professor of communication and Paul Teeger, founder and CEO of Speed Reading People. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to everybody who helped out uh, to uh, Kayo and Wolf and especially Greg Hill. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a wiener.